So, um, how would you feel, Shahid, about getting a new Nintendo Switch next year, like another one? I think I would like that. Mm. So there's this rumor on the Wall Street Journal, um, just come out this week. Um, there aren't any like exact details of what Nintendo is working on, but according to the Wall Street Journal, Nin- uh, Nintendo is planning a revision of the Nintendo Switch um, with supposedly no, not an OLED display, but a, it sounds like a better LCD um, version of the screen, maybe bigger, maybe brighter, maybe superior color reproduction. But the idea would be that Nintendo is considering this revision of the console to match the and to keep the momentum going. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, some recent stats from the um, from the gaming industry saying that the Nintendo Switch has slightly slightly slowed down in terms of unit sales compared to last year. And so the theory would be Nintendo is working on a revision to keep the momentum going, to keep the sales up, um, and that's because what it's, it's what Nintendo does. They do revisions of consoles. Um, I think it's interesting that the Nintendo, for the first time in a few years, they do not have... I mean, right now we're in October, so we have, uh, you know, still three months left before the end of 2018. But it looks like 2018, Nintendo will not have a revision of an existing console on the market. You know, there's no... 3DS revision that we know of because Nintendo is of course winding down production of games and of course consoles for the 3DS family and there's no Nintendo Switch revision happening this year, looks like so what do you think do you think this is the right approach uh, doing a, you know, two years after the original console, uh, an improved version next year? I I think it's perfectly reasonable they have a monster hit on their hands Mm -hmm. they have the capacity to create these, as many as are needed now, I've, I would imagine. I don't think they're in short supply now. They have tooled up their factory to produce these things, or several factories to produce these things. And so I would want to try and get as much as I could. I wouldn't want to squeeze every drop out of this current hardware format before moving on. Obviously, if they had noticed a, a significant slowing down, or they um, predicted, you know, in their own forecast, right. predicted a significant hardware slowing down. One way around that is to introduce a hardware refresh that's slightly smaller, slimmer, lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, not always better, but but usually it's dressed up in a way that it's, it's uh, more convenient, i.e. slimmer, lighter, whatever. Right. Longer battery life, maybe? Yeah, yeah maybe. But it's about cutting costs. That's why you do it. You cut costs. It allows you to reduce the price slightly because you've been making this thing for a while and you want to give a little uplift to the sales momentum. And that's why they would do a revision. But at the moment, I would imagine sales are still strong. Yes, they might have declined a bit, but hey, we've we've literally just exited summer, which is right. not the greatest time for these things. And as we said for a while, because of the cost of the Switch, it's not a cheap device, right? It's been marketed primarily as a console. And I think it makes sense for them to... Remember, we talked about that in the future, they might well shift this more towards a mobile marketing approach when the price starts to come down. Mm -hmm. And that will allow them to make the necessary changes to save some money and sell some more units. So I don't don't think it's a bad shout. I don't think the market has lost interest in Switch. And I don't think they need to worry about this before Christmas. And of course, the run into Christmas means 
great opportunities for a whole bunch of retailers to do bundles and so on. And maybe Nintendo give them a little bit of a kickback. I don't think they need to. I think it'll be the the hottest console of Christmas. Yeah, I mean the the new Super Mario Party as uh, you know reviewed well. They have uh, Smash Brothers coming out. Uh, in the holiday season, so should be a should be a good Christmas and and overall like uh, holiday season for the Switch. I think it's interesting to consider the possibility that maybe as a modular console, um, this improved Switch could be sold as a traditional bundle. So you buy the console with the dock and and the console and the and the Joy Cons. I could see also though the possibility for just buying the new console, like just the screen. Because what if you already have the Joy Cons and you already have the dock, but also you want to get a new Switch? Maybe Nintendo could just sell you the console itself. Um, I don't think they would do it. Like you, maybe you, well, you just buy a box with the screen inside. But hey, that you know, Apple sells you an iPad, just the iPad, <laughs> which is basically just a screen. You don't have a keyboard. <laughs> you don't have anything else. Yeah. So yeah. I could see the idea of either you get a new, new, you know, new Nintendo Switch S or whatever it's called, uh, with the, the with the dock and the controllers and the cables, or if you already own a Nintendo Switch, you can just buy the console itself because Nintendo, they have pushed this idea. I think in a in a previous. Uh, earnings call that they want to make sure that they sell a Nintendo Switch to each family, but then once they, they've established that, that they also sell a Switch for every family member. So the idea of perhaps you already own a Nintendo Switch and a bunch of Joy-Cons, well now you can also get just the console and you can reuse your existing docks and Joy-Cons with a new one. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy that. I buy that. I, I would imagine that youngsters and young adults okay maybe too early for youngsters maybe the youngsters still play the one in front of the tv but maybe young adults they would want their own one yeah yeah i could see that see that kind of working see it's not quite the same crowd as the ds or the game boy right that skewed much younger hmm yeah i could see like a scenario where um for example, uh, the you know the old switch gets passed on onto your kids, and you as the you know as the dad you get the new you get the new switch. Uh, so you can you can establish this sort of you, you can have multiple old switches that are maybe even cheaper to buy. Yeah, but yeah. then you know uh, the adult or the grown up can buy the new the new switch the new improved switch. And the idea of modular of modularity, I think that. That's what's really interesting for me because uh, buying the console, but then you can you also you can also reuse your existing dock and your existing controllers. I mean that of course uh, that theory is predicated upon the assumption that Nintendo is not going to change the Joy Cons. But then again, why would you do it? Why would you do a modular console with a specific type of attachment if you keep changing the attachment over the course of the same generation? So I think they're going to keep the controllers the same and the dock the same. And I could see a scenario where you just buy the console, you don't buy the dock again, you don't buy the the all the cables and and stuff again you just buy the console that that would be cool so when you get this new um handheld console presumably it would come with a couple of joy cons right already slid in mm. because mm -hmm. or or do you think it would not even include those because the way i see it is if you've bought one of these things and you haven't got an additional pair of controllers and some people won't 
I don't know what the figures are, but my guess is the majority will not have an extra pair of controllers. Surely you'd want the new uh, device, let's call it the um, the spiritual successor to the DS, um, to to have controllers built in. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it would be weird not to have the controllers into the box. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that Nintendo, in theory, is now free to do whatever they want in terms of what goes into the box because they're selling this idea of a modular console. And once you once you go modular, people sort of expect to be able to, to buy parts individually. Um, so I, I could see, like... For example, let's take my my case as an example. I have a Nintendo Switch, two Pro Controllers, two docks, and five Joy-Cons. <laughs> so, and a partridge in a pear tree. So I'm, I'm probably... Uh, uh, this is probably a problem, and I'm probably, you know, an odd, an odd case. I think there's other people like me. You know, we bought yeah. a Switch, we bought a Switch, yeah. Because it's a, it's natively a multiplayer console. And so, therefore, we bought multiple docks and multiple controllers. Why would I want to add additional docks and controllers? Because I already have them all. And it's very unlikely that I'm going to have more than eight people at my house playing with the Nintendo Switch all at once. So I'm good with the controllers and I'm good with the docks. Just sell me the new console. Like... Literally, I just want, if you do this, I just want the screen itself, which would be the actual console. I don't need all the other accessories because I already own them because you you convinced me, you as a company selling this idea of the multiplayer console, you convinced me to buy them over the past two years. So I'm just saying that if this happens and when this happens, I hope that Nintendo gives you the option to buy just the part that you need. But of, co- of course, Nintendo being Nintendo, they'll probably do something weird. And there will be no modular option at all. You'll be forced to rebuy the entire thing from scratch with a new dock <laughs> with two Joy-Cons and it'll be full price. Uh. <laughs> oh no, don't don't be cynical. I mm. think they'll look after you. We'll see. Uh, Shahid, <laughs> tell me about all this Oculus news. Uh, I'm, I'm behind on all of this. What, what's going on in the Oculus world? Well, there was the uh, Oculus Connect 5 event recently where Oculus announced the Oculus Quest, which is basically the uh, real name for the project Santa Cruz. Now, this is quite exciting because it features inside-out tracking, hand presence, six degrees of freedom, both on the headset and the hand controllers, no computer is required, and wow, no cables, no cables, no. Cables? That is a big thing. Yep. So this thing will work not just in a room, but in any space, and you're not carrying a great big PC in a backpack on your back. The whole thing just fits in the headset and your hand controls. So the sense of freedom that you've got with this is phenomenal. Now, of course. I know you're going to ask me a couple of really important questions, right? You can ask me how much it costs and how powerful is it? Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, how is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the power level, it sits somewhere be- between a, a Go and a Rift and arguably closer to a Rift. Because think about it. 
all that power from the PC has got to be squirted down cables. The PC is doing loads of other things. And although the chipset in, um, in the Quest is kind of like a, uh, an advanced mobile chipset, it doesn't have to do anything except run software for the Quest, right? That's its pure function. It doesn't have to do any of the telephony or, or any of that. It's mm. purely about delivering a great experience. It will probably be overclocked slightly, just as Go was, I believe, slightly overclocked. Hmm. And get this, it's got a fan. <laughs> it's got a fan. A fan? Uh, yeah. So I, I would imagine the fan is because you're going to be running games on it quite a lot. Mm. And you know how a phone gets really, really hot when you're running a game at yeah. 60 frames all the time? Yeah. You don't want that happening on your face for long periods no. of time. So I would imagine the fan is going to be necessary for that, especially if the thing is overclocked. Do you know what the, what the placement of the fan is? I don't know, but it's mm. not supposed to be particularly loud or intrusive. Okay. And this, this thing has got the same kind of um, earpieces that were on the go. Have you ever tried a go? No, unfortunately it's no. Really, oh, it's freaky. Because you put it on and you start hearing sound and you, you're looking at it, things... Where are the headphones? <laughs> you know, wow. the sound actually comes out of the straps straight into your ear. And the ones on the the Quest uh, are 360 degrees, apparently. Well, we'll see. I don't know what, exactly what that means, because if you're doing anything for uh, VR, you're going to be doing um, HRTF type audio. And uh, that's kind of hard to get working um, with something that's not very close to your ears. Uh, but yeah, it literally comes out of the strap. It's really unusual. You have to try it, and then then you'll you'll kind of have the same puzzled uh -huh. expression as I did, I would imagine. Hmm. But in terms of the experiences, they are supposed to be very close to Rift like. And many of the people who attended Oculus Connect Five, so San Jose last week, I believe, commented that it looked and felt as good as a Rift. Now, time will tell, because of course the Rift has got access to a much more powerful PC. And it's going to be able to do things that the Quest can't. But if you're careful, you'll get amazing experiences with this and a sense of freedom that's not possible on anything else. You've got both ends meeting. You've got the freedom with the wireless, but then you've got the immersion from the six degrees of freedom and the hand tracking. And, of course, you've got inside-out tracking and the price. This is the thing that blew me away. $399 US. That's incredible. No computer necessary. No computer, just... Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a very... That's aggressive pricing. It feels like that's something that, that of course, Facebook can do. Um, hmm. This is probably a bit too, uh, bit too over the top, but I'm going to say it anyway. This, for me, is like um, the Nintendo Switch of VR. Not in terms of sales impact, but what I mean is, you know the way Nintendo approach a market and say... Where can we fit in this space rather than how can we dominate this space? And then when they find a space in which they fit, they tend to expand because nobody else is in that space. Hmm. And I think this, the, the Quest, has, has done the thing that we wanted a VR headset to do, not entirely comfortably, but close to it. Um, I am very excited about this. It's, apparently, it's coming out in spring. 2019 mm -hmm. and i want one of these and i want to make games for this thing it feels like 
the this device is is about to break the the obvious limitation of VR, which is you need to be tied to a PC and you need to have this cable running down your body and going into a powerful PC. Like complete freedom from an external processing unit. I feel like that's been the dream of VR all along. And um it's interesting to consider like once you once you break this barrier, like once you gain this freedom that you can be in VR at you know at, in in any moment, um, what happens when you start considering things like, well, what if you could be in VR outside? Like, what if you could do VR with a with a cellular connection? And this maybe sounds crazy, like the idea of. But what if you go to a museum and you you bring your own VR headset and you can you know it's crazy to think about but like once you move past the limitation of well you need to be in your room you need to be at your PC you know with this cable yeah um, I think anything is possible in terms of like you can have a virtual reality experience anywhere at any moment um, because you just need to bring this thing with you. Um, well, the interesting thing uh, about what you've just said is uh, Mark Zuckerberg was talking about mixed reality, uh, and then you had some of his engineers talking about that being on the roadmap, that at some point it, they wanted to do an inversion so that you're in a VR world, but the real world is now being in some way overlaid into your virtual virtual world. So uh, did you ever see... Uh, the film version of the Philip K. Dick book, um, Through a Scanner Darkly. No. Okay. If you check mm. out the graphical style of that, that's what they're talking about. And that's the kind of image that they're giving, which is actually uh, a little bit creepy. But um, the idea being that you can use an outline of the real world, kind of like a hand-drawn sketch of the real world, mm-hmm. overlaid into your game world to give you a sense of location. Wow. Okay. So worth checking out. The videos are very, very cool. At what point does that sort of blur the the difference between AR and VR? Like, if you if you start putting cameras on these things and and like you you put you put on a headset, so you're in VR, but then you can also see the world around you. At what point does this sort of become AR, but with a more powerful headset? I would say that this is where it starts to happen. Hmm. This is very interesting, especially if you consider like it feels like there's different companies working toward the same end goal, and eventually things are gonna converge. So you have Oculus, for example, working on on you know doing VR, and they start with this big headset that needs to be connected to the PC, and eventually they move on to things like well, you can do this with a phone, and then they do this new one, which means complete freedom, but. Once you start considering, for example, putting cameras on it and having the world around you, and then you see companies like Apple, for example, doing AR kit uh, with the obvious goal of eventually doing glasses, um, basically, it sounds like we're going to move, uh, we're going to have the same sort of the same final product, but coming from two different approaches. Uh, which I think is fascinating that, you know, so far you've heard uh, all of these narratives about how VR and AR are fundamentally different and like sort of like the complete opposite. I don't think they are the complete opposite. I think 
right now they enable different experiences of course you know when you when you try a vr headset that's on the market right now you immerse your, you immerse yourself in a different world and when you try an ar product you're overlaying information uh in the world around you but i think assuming that you know 5 years from now maybe even less things will stay the same as they are right now i think that's a bit short sighted i think things will be more will be converging more than right now we think they are mm. does that make any any sense to you it, Am I it making does any it sense? does hmm. it does i mean things will change anyway but there, of course there's convergence across the board and of course people are using different terms for what is essentially the same thing and and that same thing is we are getting to the point where um virtual reality and reality the lines between them are becoming increasingly blurred. Mm. And you know if it this is a kind of tangential point but if you look at the way the news media works these days and fake news and uh, social media and so on the lines between reality and completely fake alternate reality have also started to become blurred. It's only a matter of time when the same is true of the physical senses and we now have well it seems to be that we now have the hardware to demonstrate that this is uh just thinking about all of these things like when you start factoring in things like mixed reality which is also mm. something that uh i think would would you consider the hololens from microsoft for example yes. mixed reality okay yeah um, so that's sort of uh that's sort of in the middle right the idea mixed of, reality yeah kind of uh, ma- uh, magic leap as well hololens uh-huh, that kind uh-huh. of thing yeah Hmm. You don't you don't have a, a magic leap, do you? No, I don't. Are, uh, you, in, are you interested in it at all? Not yet. Hmm. Not yet. I I think I will be. I'm. You, I, I think you you know my position on this. There will be that mixed reality, but the interesting thing for me is virtual reality. The the thing that really excites me is the ability to completely replace where you're at with something that somebody has imagined. And I don't think we've gone anywhere near far enough with that yet. You know, I can already do reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, I'm quite happy with reality. Um, uh, and I'm quite happy with the way I experience that. I don't mind it being augmented. I, I would love uh, to be able to augment some reality and to diminish other parts of reality. For me, it's almost a, a sense of if I could turn down some aspects of reality, um, like my neighbor's dogs that were barking throughout this podcast. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Whenever I see your tweets about this dog, I'm so well. If for what it's worth, I cannot hear it right now. So if that's of any consolation, I know that it's not the same for you. But then you that's all, no, it's not barking right now. But that's fantastic because I have a really good microphone. But my point being that we haven't even started to explore the possibilities of what can be done with various takes on reality. So we've talked about augmented, we've talked about virtual, we've talked about mixed, and of course, we can start to talk about diminished, we can talk about enhanced. So everything you're seeing is not augmented by auxiliary information, but perhaps you you have some difficulty seeing, and you put on some glasses, and if there are issues with your um, with your peripheral vision, then you are alerted in your central vision to something that's coming into your periphery. 
So that will that kind of thing could help uh, less able people, or you do it with audio, right? So you have sensors that can sense the world, and they they transfer reality to you almost like like how a bat hears things, not ultrasonically, of course, but sonically. And these kind of things kind of already exist. So this is for all kinds of people. I think eventually, right now, we're focusing on people who've got um, complete. Uh, sensory availability, uh-huh. but there's no reason why this couldn't be adapted to absolutely everybody. So they all have uh, quite a unique and amazing experience. That's amazing. Like just thinking about all these possibilities, and um, because I, you don't normally associate uh, VR with this kind of potential, like just because I, you know, over the past few years we've seen VR primarily as a as a gaming thing. But the idea of once you move past that preconception and you also consider other types of reality, uh, as you mentioned, the applications for like in terms of accessibility for you know um, visually impaired people, for example, like that sounds amazing. I, I didn't even think about that. So, should we, should we talk about our friends? Yes, because we have a bunch another. Two topics that we want to get to today. Um, one that I want to ask Shahid about, uh, a few technical questions uh, and, and his opinion about those. Uh, but before we move on to those topics, Shahid, what can you tell me about our friends at Squarespace? Well, I can tell you that this episode of Remaster is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you want to create a portfolio. And maybe you want to create a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com forward slash remaster. When you decide to sign up, do use the offer code remaster and you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, That's squarespace.com forward slash remaster and the code remaster to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So we mentioned Google's uh, streaming console before as a rumor. Uh, I think a couple of months ago, Kotaku had a report on Google working on a streaming uh, only not even a console streaming only service that you can run in Google Chrome, um, and the news is now official uh, because Apple, uh, because Google, sorry, uh, worked with Ubisoft uh, to make a stream only version of the new Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, coming out this week, available in Google Chrome with some limitations. Uh, first of all. Uh, it's uh, this very much beta uh, launch is US only, and it's only supported in Google Chrome, of course. And it's not; it doesn't sound like it's the full game. Like there are some li- uh, limitations, like the game's economy is not available when it's streaming. 
But still, Google made this official, which is, you know, the news is big enough in itself. But also, there's a video that shows the new Assassin's Creed in action inside Google Chrome. So this is stre- streaming at 1080p, 60 frames per second, inside Google Chrome. On any PC, in theory, that can run Google Chrome 69, uh, which is the latest version of the browser. Um, I'm, like, when I saw the video of a game like the new Assassin's Creed streaming in Google Chrome, my jaw just dropped. I cannot believe that this is possible, but it's right there. And unless Google is faking this demo video, which I don't think they are, um, this is incredible. Uh, right now, you will need a you will need a computer with Google Chrome and a USB. I think you will need a USB controller or a keyboard. Trackpads are not supported. Um, this is a project that doesn't have a name right now. It's just called Project Stream. Uh, you can sign up if you live in the US. Google doesn't mention anything else about launching this service or pricing or what the what the actual strategy is. Still. It seems like, of course, the Kotaku report of a Google game streaming service is real. It's going to be Google Chrome only, and the demo is impressive. Shahid, you need to tell me how this is possible and what what happens now. Like, where does Google go from here, from this first announcement? Well, Google happens to have some of the smartest engineers on the face of the planet there. And they've been pretty good at this network thing for quite a while you know they they know how to build server boxes they have their own design for them of course and they have got more farms than you could shake a stick at so they know about server infrastructure they know about points of access they know how to get as much speed as it's possible to get to um to a local point of course they don't have control over the entire internet infrastructure So there are some limits. My understanding is that this particular demo requires a connection of at least 13 megabits per second. And my guess is that the demo that you saw was running at significantly more. It's running on on a Google Fiber connection. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So there are these things that have been looked at by other companies. We know, of course, about PS Now, which is an experience that is already out there, that already works, but is limited to some PlayStation games. And so we know that the technology exists and it can work, albeit with some issues, depending on the real world connections. And my guess is that Google have a better chance of taking care of their side of the infrastructure than anybody else on the planet, with the possible exception of Amazon. And I don't think Amazon necessarily want to do what I believe Google are trying to do. The other great thing that's possible from from this, of course, is that multiplayer games, they can be played in the cloud. So all of that from uh, all, all of that latency that you would normally get is massively minimized. It's not eliminated. There, there's lots of local latency still. You still got to make the round trip to whatever the local server is. But there are lots of little efficiencies that can be gained by what they're doing. I think I interrupted you. You were just about to ask me something, weren't you? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, it was probably something that, that, that didn't, was not important because I'm just, when I listen to you about this stuff, like, um, um, you've been around in this industry a long time and you, I think 
one of the things that I and this is just a personal compliment. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I enjoy about your your discussions is that you always keep an open mind to new technologies and new things and like changes to the industry, despite the fact that you've been in the industry a long time. And most people, you know, I see this with my job. Um, most people, once they've, they've sort of been doing something in any industry for a while, they like to keep things the same. Um, what I like is that you, you, uh, you have a, a tendency to ignore the status quo of things. <laughs> and this sort of comes through when we discuss video games and the industry and what comes next. So whenever you talk about this stuff, I just sit quietly and I listen because I find that extremely valuable. Anyway. Um, <laughs> That's very kind. Of you. <laughs> um, how do you think Google can market this product if it becomes a product? Um, as a subscription, as a as something that is tied to YouTube in some way, um, does Google want to, for example, what happens if this becomes part of the Google Play Store, for example? Like the Google Play Store, besides Android, we now do PC games, um, but they run in the cloud. And I, I think it just thinking about the fact that Google could serve you any kind of video games because right now I just think that the possibility of streaming PC games and streaming Android games because why not because they, I mean they are you know they are living on Google servers and they could probably figure out a way to stream games to your phone as well so the idea of sort of having any kind of game whether it's mobile or from PC available in the cloud Bearing in mind that you need a powerful internet connection, um, but then again, we're sort of moving toward the Netflix of gaming, if you think about it. Like, if it becomes like $10 a month and you can stream and play any game that you want, that sounds incredible. And also potentially dangerous for the industry, somehow. Yeah, there there are people who don't like this approach. Exactly. Um, mm. But it is where a lot of things are headed. Uh, I had a an an open conversation on Twitter with my good friend Mike Wilson, who uh who runs Devolver Digital and is also chiefly involved with Good Shepherd. And the the way I said it was this this is where things are going and you know just try and shape it into the best thing you can. And he came he was quite strongly against it. And he said, no, you you need to fight these things while you can, otherwise you'll lose the privileges that you had. And the way I see it is that there will always be an element of people who fight. But when the groundswell starts to move towards these places, it's not evil people doing it. It's pragmatic people, generally. Mm. You know, because here's a problem. I'm hearing from more and more developers that they're not making any money at all, video game developers. They're not getting any exposure. They're not getting featured. Nobody wants to play their games. Their games aren't considered commercial. And they are leaving the industry. And their their dreams are broken. And, you know, I, I could easily find myself in that position. It's not an easy business to be in. So how about if you had a company that was willing to invest in the promotion of games for the sake of being games? And yes, it's a, it, it sounds like it's anti market but it isn't if you look at netflix 
people now watch more documentaries than they used to. Right. Mm. Right? They wouldn't choose to watch these things, but because Netflix has promoted them as a category in their own right and changed the way that people approach the making of documentaries and given them more detail, more nuance, more variety, more interest, more people are watching documentaries. How did that happen? And yet, if you had gone to a market-only approach, well, the market was saying, nobody wants to watch documentaries. And I think the same thing might well happen with video games so that you do have a subscription service where you might not necessarily get the downloads, but you would have been paid more than you would have otherwise. Not so much as a public service, but because in having the variety in your portfolio as a subscription service, you are more appealing, irrespective of how many people download all of the titles. We know people will watch the Breaking Bads of this world. Um, you know, they, they will binge watch that kind of content. All of the latest stuff on Netflix, they will, they will binge watch if it's of reasonable quality. And that's the stuff that will attract the views. But, you know, they'll also watch the documentaries that cost $30,000 to make and got funded maybe $30,000. And there's more art in the world because of that. And so because of this, I think also companies like Apple, I would be surprised if they didn't at some point have some kind of game subscription service. And the top players won't necessarily buy in, and that's fine. Uh, I remember at PlayStation, it took a long time to negotiate the deals. You can imagine everybody wanted um, a greater share depending on their profile, mm -hmm. right? So those are really tricky negotiations. But I think it, there will come a point where Apple say, you know what, it's not healthy. It's not healthy to have just this extreme version of the Pareto principle. It's no longer 80-20. We're talking about 99.999, whatever the opposite of that is. And 99.999% of the revenue is going to 0.001 or whatever it is, percent of the, of the developers. It's not healthy for us if we only focus on this. And what happens is because that's a market-driven approach, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting, uh, you're improving the world in some creative manner that just isn't happening it's got nothing to do with that nobody cares about that and i know apple are very much market driven so for example they don't make the se anymore right right why is it they don't make the se anymore you know this better than most people it's because they said well the market's really not moving in that direction right that's hardware but the software's got to make the hardware look good and the software's just going to be the stuff that's free to play and makes trillions of dollars for two companies that's not a good illustration of the hardware, which is why they feature the AR demos and games and why they work so hard on uh, editorial and App Store curation recently to make the whole App Store much, a much more interesting experience. Profiles and developers, all the kind of things I was suggesting to the PlayStation Store team about five, <laughs> six years ago. But, you know, <laughs> uh, Apple have paid attention. This is where the industry is going. And I think Google is going to be going the same way. Google had the advantage in that they're going to be streaming the AAA stuff. Apple won't have the AAA stuff. But that's fine. They have the they they have enough money. They're going to be cool, right? Mm -hmm. But but Google want the AAA stuff. Google are really focusing. My my understanding is uh, from uh, from people who have spoken to me and who shall remain nameless is that Google's current focus is to get the AAA stuff on board. And the reason is simple: if you can play the AAA stuff anywhere, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. How is that going to be achieved? There are all kinds of things. I mean, obviously they have the infrastructure. Uh, they have the server-side infrastructure to pull that off. What they don't have 
is the other stuff. But then that's okay because they can they can make a play of having it featured in those areas where broadband is magnificent. And I would my guess is that the argument to those people who don't have it is that it will come eventually. See, the problem with with PlayStation was to begin with, PlayStation uh, Now, PS Now, uh, was not playable on a PC to begin with, as far as I recall. I think it was just a, you could play it on a PlayStation 4, I think. And then eventually there was the, the PC stuff. And then I think you could even play it on Vita. Um, but here we're talking about playing it in a browser, playing it absolutely anywhere, playing it on a Chromecast, playing any AAA game. And of course, the other limitation of PS Now was you were restricted to PlayStation games. Of course. And and there there is no limitation here. And that also means there's no limitation to the graphical fidelity. So here's the thing. If you've got a company like Crytek making games for PCs that don't even exist yet, right? Several years into the future, the PCs will run their games really brilliantly. Well, Google can do that. No problem at all. And they can have it streaming to an, any device they want. So my guess is that that's why they're focusing, because that's the thing that makes people's jaws drop. And then when they start to get the multiplayer stuff going, anybody who has decent broadband is going to get an absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, some uh, I, I won't name the game, but I hear credible reports there are some amazing existing AAA games already running on Google service. And how do you play them? Well, with Google's controller, of course. That uh, This is another reasonably credible report I've got, that their controller is superb. Hmm. Uh, and that it connects directly to your router, so you've taken care of one of the potential um, bottlenecks of going through a device before you go to the internet, because huh. you know, there's always going to be some lag in that stack. But right. if this thing is is Wi-Fi, right, not Bluetooth, but Wi-Fi, and it's going straight to your router, then there's there's a little bit of lag that's taken away, and that's going to help them immensely. I'm very excited by this, I have to say. Um, I I think it's going to be really powerful as a statement. My only issue with it is, who is the market? Because if you're talking about people, say, who are a bit more casual, well, people who are a bit more casual in their gameplay don't play hardcore games. And hardcore games and AAA games have quite a significant overlap on the Venn diagram is my guess. So that that is kind of an area of, uh, I think, difficulty. But that's the market issue. Eventually, it's going to spread. Eventually, they're going to have all kinds of content there, and they're going to have games that anybody can play on any device. And I think that can only be a good thing. What it means in business terms, uh, it just means that it's very, very hard. And if we're talking about spreading that graph, so there's not so much 99.999% of all the money goes to a tiny percentage of uh, developers or publishers. If it's just going to be back to Pareto again, 80-20, that's better, I think. It's an interesting form of software socialism. (laughs) 